Singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron uh, via patreon.com forward slash singularity FM. Today, my guest on the show is famous physicist Max Tegmark. Max is one of the founders of the Future of Life Institute, as well as the best-selling author of books such as Our Mathematical Universe and most recently Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Welcome to Singularity FM, Max. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Oh, the pleasure is entirely, entirely uh, mine. And uh, I have to say, I, I, I spend a lot of time preparing for this. So uh, I have a bit of trep- trepidation, just like you're describing when you're talking to Elon Musk and, and getting him to partake in the things that you do. I feel the same exact <laughs> way today. So thank oh, you for none. the honor. I'm not an intimidating person. I'm just, just a, a dude. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I hope. Uh, okay, great. I'll take that. Uh, so if I were to ask, you said I'm just a dude. If I were to ask you to describe in your own words, how would you do that? Who is Max Tegmark? If you mean what defines me, I would say curiosity is probably the first word that comes to mind. I've always been, ever since I was a little kid, just really curious about understanding stuff and the bigger the question was the more excited i would get so it's no coincidence that my day job my research career has been about the biggest questions i could find first our universe out there spending many years on cosmology and then now in recent years our universe in here studying biological and artificial intelligence and the mysteries of the mind and also the you know the big questions about what we're doing as a species on this planet and how we could do better. Uh, other than that, I don't know. I'm, uh, I don't like taking myself seriously. I think that's maybe a, partly a Swedish trait. But, uh, I, I like, which part of Sweden are you from? I'm from Stockholm originally. And, uh, we, um, we have a, tr- a traditional award that they call the goof of the year award that my brother and I started where we would give prizes who screws up in the most spectacular ways. I, I think making fun of ourselves is a very good way to, <laughs> to remember what's really important in life. And I think it's a very human and maybe even not merely human, but very highly evolved human capacity to have sort of a self-depreciating humor and enjoy it at the same time. Yeah, I kind of wish some of our politicians had more of that too. <laughs> I wish so too. We'll, we'll touch about that later. I had a lot of audience questions on that topic. Um, but if I were to to make you choose between a mathematician and a physicist, are you a physicist first and foremost? I'm a scientist first and foremost. My... Uh... Life slogan, I think, it really defines me is that I would rather have questions I can't answer than answers I can't question. And um, I'll take on any question that I'm fascinated about, whether it be physics, nerdy stuff, or, or more to do with mathematics. Right now, my research at MIT with my research group is mainly on artificial intelligence. 
which is a quite interdisciplinary topic, really, bringing together a lot of ideas from math, computer science, and neuroscience, and, and even physics. What is it that brings so many physicists into the field of artificial intelligence? You know, I talk to, um, I mean, uh, Lawrence Krauss is not exactly in your field, but I've interviewed him on my show here. But of course, we had even uh, people such as Dr. Stephen Hawking making pronouncements on the topic. Uh, Elon Musk is a, is a great sympathizer of physics. Of course, we have Martin Rees. Uh, we have a long history of physicists, you know, getting involved. John, John von Neumann, of course, uh, and, and so on and so on. What brings so many physicists into the field of AI? I think what it is is this physicist's obsession with, with um, not just trying to make things sort of work, like engineers, but actually understanding it at a deeper level and also having the audacity to to think that maybe you can understand things that other people think are too complicated. You know, if, if like I'm sitting here uh, drinking water and if I, if I stir this up, you know, in the old days, people could have said, oh, this business with these waves and vortices, it's, well, there's no way we can understand this until we understand all the details about molecules and atoms and hey, maybe even we should understand the string theory and quantum gravity and then you never get anywhere. But, but physicists came along and had the audacity to think, hey, maybe there's a hidden simplicity in these patterns. And they actually discovered this thing called the Navier-Stokes equations, which discover beautifully everything we see here. And that was done even before people knew that there were atoms. And in the same way, I think physicists look at something like intelligence, where a lot of other people are taking almost this botany approach and saying, oh, you can never understand anything about the brain until you understand why there are so many different kinds of neurons. And sort of having this audacity to think, maybe there's a hidden simplicity here that lets us understand the higher level phenomena without getting lost in the weeds. And, uh, for example, Hopfield, who really revolutionized neuroscience by coming up with this extremely simple neural network model. He was a physicist. Surprise, no surprise, right? And um, more recently, when Google DeepMind blew the world away with our Alpha Zero AI, right? That by just playing against itself was able to learn to beat the world's best Go players and chess players. It didn't use any of this complexity of dozens of different kinds of neurons. There was only one kind of neuron. They were all identical and super oversimplified. I just think again, vindicated this, this physicist's <laughs> idea that maybe the interesting thing about the mind in this case is at the higher level where we actually can understand. So I, I suspect this is what it is. And I, I think uh, to make foundational breakthroughs, you need to have this audacity. You need to hope that there is something simple and beautiful there to find. Otherwise, you're not going to sit up late nights looking for it. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, curiosity is like the word that you associate yourself with the most. So I presume that's how it all started for you. But did your path go through math and then physics or physics and then math? Which one was first? Oh, my path was very crooked and <laughs> confused. You know, I, and, and I, I always liked math, but, for, but and uh, my, my dad's a mathematician. So, you know, I noticed how excited he was about math. I would go ask him about how he thought about that sort of about Fourier transforms while he was doing the dishes back home in Sweden. 
but uh, physics was my most boring subject in high school. <laughs> yeah, go figure. That shows the importance of teaching. Which one and, was your favorite subject in high school? If physics was the worst, the least interesting. I don't even know if I had one, really. The, but I was... I had this idealistic phase in my teens and um, the thought that the way we can really influence the world, influence people's behavior, is through their wallet. So I studied economics. Wow. And then there was this very crooked path. But then I had this friend of mine gave me this book by the physicist Richard Feynman called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. And I said, you need to read this, he said. And it wasn't about physics at all. It was about all this, this, cra- this crazy mischief he did. But I could tell he loved physics, and that intrigued me. And then I had a girlfriend at the time who was studying physics. And I just thought her textbooks were much more interesting than mine. And even though that love didn't last, my love for physics did. And, and this led me to actually start studying physics. And uh, here I am. Wow. And I, I honestly think the world is a better place for you not taking economics personally, but that's my own personal bias, <laughs> you know. Um, so let me ask you this, though. Um, you talk about the math, our mathematical universe and about being a scientist first and foremost. Is that reality? Because let me let me give you the, sort of my sort of a setup where I'm coming from. I'm a big fan of Zen Buddhism. I'm I'm an atheist, but if there's one religion which I really highly sort of like a lot is is Buddhism and in particular Zen Buddhism, and I love Alan Watts. Well, Buddhism in the traditional form doesn't even have a god in it, so I guess that's what you're saying is self consistent. Yes. Uh, but it's called religion in popular culture. Anyway, even though it's more like a philosophy, in my opinion, or an ethics, a code of ethics, even if you will. Uh, anyway, so Alan Watts says that math, uh, just like uh, letters, because math is numbers, for example, that represent uh, real objects that r- exist in reality, is therefore not the real objects, but the mere, mirror image of those objects. Just like, for example, Plato claimed with his cave metaphor that, you know, we have those shadows on the wall in the cave that people perceive to be reality, whereas reality was completely different. Likewise, Alan Watts says that math is not reality, but is a mere representation of reality, the mere, the poor mirror image of reality, which, if captivated Uh, if captivating us to a certain degree would uh, basically imprison us in Plato's cave of fake reality by thinking it's the real reality because we should never forget that, you know, we have physical uh, mathematical representation, let's say, of this glass and of sound, but this is the, uh, the, those representations in paper are not reality. This is reality. He says this is reality and we can't give it a name because This is the real thing, and all the stuff on paper is merely the representation of this stuff. So, sorry, that was a very long digression, but what's your take on this kind of argument from Alan Watts? Well, first of all, I I find it kind of amusing that um, some of the people who, who feel most confident that they know exactly what reality is are not physicists who've actually <laughs> st- studied exactly, bing, you know, and what's happening when you hit the glass. 
it's so easy to feel you understand things when you, <laughs> when you haven't probed it in detail. If, if I am, um, if you ask me, well, first of all, what is math? What is a mathematical object in the first place, right? It's it's an object that has no properties other than mathematical properties. And you might think, oh, the, this cup, surely it's not a mathematical object because the properties it has, like yellowness and it's kind of plasticky and the water with its wetness, you know, those aren't mathematical properties, right? But when I look at this with my physicist eyes, I see a blob of a quarks and electrons. And these elementary particles, what properties did they have? What, is the, what are the properties of an electron? In fact, the properties of an electron are minus one, one half, one, and so on. And we physicists have given those properties nerdy names like electric charge, spin, and lepton numbers. But let's face it, they're just numbers. And in fact, the only difference between the electrons and the quarks and all the other particles that make up everything around me in the room here is what numbers their properties are. So if all the stuff that makes up our world has only mathematical properties, it starts to sound a little bit less crazy already that maybe this is something mathematical. And what about the space that all the stuff is in? What are the properties of space, actually? Well, one property, if you think about it, is three. Because three is the largest number of fingers I can hold that are all perpendicular to each other. Again, we have a nerdy name for this. We call it the dimensionality of space. But that's just a word we humans made up. The property is three. Then Einstein came along and said that space also has properties of curvature and topology, which are, again, math properties you'll study in grad school. Right? So if both space and everything in space, as far as we physicists can tell, have no properties except mathematical properties, then I think we need to take seriously the idea that, hey, you know, maybe reality is actually something very different from what we thought. Maybe it's actually a purely mathematical object. And, and uh, you know, one comeback I often get is people say, oh, you know, this, this Max Tegmark, he's crazy. He's, he's conflating the map with the terrain. He's conflating the description with the described. Or the notes with the music. Yeah, on the notes of the music. For example, let, let's make uh, let's think about um, the planets in the solar system. You know, the name Neptune is a description. The planet itself is the thing we're describing. Let's think now about the octahedron, the dodecahedron, the cube, the tetrahedron, and the icosahedron, the five platonic solids. Right, Plato. He could have made up any name he wanted for the dodecahedron when he invented it, just like we could have called Neptune Schmeptune if we wanted. But, it, but he could not have invented a new platonic solid because there are only five that exist. Okay? In that sense, these platonic solids are not invented by us. You know, Plato discovered that they exist, and he invented the names, the descriptions that he, he, he made for them. And uh, this is... It's in this sense that mathematics is something that we discover and not invent. And, and this, this is a very, very strong emotion that my mathematician friends have, typically. Like I have a colleague at MIT, David Vogan, in his office. He has a big poster he's made with a picture of this E8, this, this mathematical object called a Lie group that he spent 10 years of his life studying, you know. 
and then he loves it so much he's made a picture of what it, the, the properties he discovered. And if I told him, hey, David, you just invented this, you didn't discover it, he would be pissed off because he, you know, he feels he discovered this in exactly the same way that Plato discovered the dodecahedron. And I, my suspicion is that um, there's this whole landscape out there of mathematical structures that we humans are gradually discovering more and more of. And uh, as, I, as I explained in, this, in my first book, A Mathematical Universe, this is the same, pre the same external reality that we also experience, that we actually live in, that we, that we actually call our, our physical world. And even though it's, it's the mathematical properties are, are well hidden, you only notice how mathematical nature is when you either start to zoom in enormously into the micro world like we did when we talked about the particles that makes this up, or when you zoom out a lot and look on the grandest cosmic scales when you start to see again, hey, wait, this is like really mathematical. Let me ask you a couple of other uh, sort of soft personal curious questions. Are you a dog person or a cat person, just for fun? Although this, at the moment, we don't. I, I don't want to have any cats in the house because there's this incredibly cute mouse that's moved in here, and <laughs> my wife and I have have made many unsuccessful attempts to catch it. We we feel it needs to go to college, and which, by which we mean uh, majoring in forest research uh, out here in Winchester. But but it's it's too smart for us. But it's also very cute. We, we put up a, an infrared video camera and can sort of see it um, tricking us at night and refusing to go into our traps. Its name is Snoofy. So as long as Snoofy lives here, there'll be no cats. But you are a cat person otherwise. Yeah. You just don't want to interfere with uh, Snoofy's uh, happiness or survival chances. <laughs> That's right. Both my wife, Maya, and I are suckers for animals, as you can see even on the, from the pictures behind us. These are all our pets, as we call them. Well, I would actually uh, bring that uh, later into our conversation because I believe it's very pertinent to the discussion of artificial intelligence, in fact. Uh, but let me ask you this. Uh, what, in your view, are the biggest issues that humanity is facing today? If you were to rank, let's say, the top three to five things that we have to contend, which one is the top one, two, and three at least? I think if you, when you start looking at the top few questions we're facing, you know, from destroying our environment to uh, poverty to the risk of accidental nuclear war to the risk of uh, messing things up with artificial intelligence or, by, or, or I think all of these things, even though these sound different at first they're all really exactly the same one and the same thing it's simply us developing technology faster than we're able to develop the wisdom with which to manage the technology and i'm really optimistic that we can actually turn things around if we can win this wisdom fast enough to keep pace with this you know you in in this when, during the stone age right we didn't have much technology. So even if we had very little wisdom, there was only so much harm with a rock in the club could do until he was overpowered by others, right? Technology ever more powerful, it amplifies our ability both to do good and to do bad. And we need to develop the wisdom 
to, to keep up with it. Like you would never walk into a kindergarten and say, hey, hey, kids, here's a chain. Have fun, play with this. Because they don't quite have that level of wisdom. And when I look at Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin and all their hydrogen bombs, I feel a lot like we gave them the like we would have given hand grenades to kindergartners. I'm not convinced that they have the wisdom to handle that level of technology. And I'm, I'm really keen to, uh, to help change this for the better. I don't think that the solution lies in, in limiting technology. I don't think that's realistic and growing our wisdom faster. Well, I totally agree with you, and my whole presumption of my blog has been uh, a conversation about exponential technology and disruptive change grounded in ethics, however, because my claim that I've put forward for the past 10 years is that technology is necessary, but it's not enough, it's not sufficient. So we can get all the technology right, but if we apply it to the wrong purposes, uh, actually, I had a big uh, argument, well, not big argument, but considerable discussion with Jan Tallinn years ago on my podcast, uh, because he was arguing that science is the engine of, 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 of like a missile and it's the most important thing. And I was saying, yeah, but it's even more important to figure out which direction you're going to point that missile, because if you point it towards Mars, we can rediscover the universe and populate the universes and, Mar and Mars being the stepping stone. If you point it towards your neighbor, it could be the end of us, right? So it's more important even where to go. And that's a, an ethical decision or a political decision, even if you will, or both, rather than an engineering decision. Yeah, I completely agree. And you'll be very pleased to know that that, that conversation led, left such a strong impression on Jan Tallinn that he has now expanded his rocket metaphor. <laughs> and I, I also like to talk about this, how if you make a rocket, it's not enough to make the engines powerful. You need to also figure out how to steer it and where you want to go with it. So the power and the steering and the destination are all very, very important. Well, I don't know if I can claim the credit for changing his mind on that, but but uh, wow, that's if if I played a small part, that's that's fantastic news. I was not aware of that. Fantastic. Thank you for letting me know. So let's talk about some of the major terms before terms before we jump into the actual content of your book. Because after doing 230 interviews on the topic of the technological singularity, one thing that I've discovered, like you in your book, is that people often talk past each other because no one defines their terms before they begin. I even recently chaired a meeting at the University of Ohio between PhDs in computer science. And as a non-expert in the field, I just asked them to define what computer science is to begin with. And I was shocked, like the, the panel got so heated and so like, and they're all PhDs in computer science, right? They couldn't even agree what computer science was all about. I was like, yeah, I was at a, I was at this panel discussion organized by the Nobel Committee in Sweden on artificial intelligence, and there were all these top AI researchers. And when they were asked to define intelligence, similarly, <laughs> they they this dissolved into acrimony. It was it was hilarious. Right. Uh, so let's start with your personal definition. What is artificial intelligence? Let's start with what is intelligence. Okay, excellent. So I define intelligence simply as the ability to accomplish complex goals. The ability to accomplish complex goals. And artificial intelligence 
It just means it's not biological intelligence doing it. And now, this definition is deliberately very inclusive because I want to include both biological and artificial intelligence. And I want to avoid this kind of silly carbon chauvinism idea that you can't be smart unless you're made of meat, right? And, and another consequence of my definition is that um, intelligence is not just one number, like an IQ, because you can have many different goals that you might want to do. Do you want to be good at music? Do you want to be good at playing chess? Do you want to be good at driving? So intelligence is a spectrum. You, yes, you might have one, one machine that's better than another machine at everything, but that's quite unusual. Kevin Kelly like calls very it an orchestra. Like an orchestra. Yeah, just like it's very unusual that you have one person who's better than another person in everything. And, and just to see how absurd it is when people start talking about like the machine IQ or whatever. Imagine that I instead told you that there is this thing called the AQ, the athletic quotient, which each person has. And whoever has the highest AQ is going to win all the gold medals in the Olympics in all sports. You know? so, so intelligence is on the spectrum. And this also shows how important it is to distinguish narrow intelligence, where you're only good at one or a small number of tasks, from the which is what most of our AI systems today have, to broad intelligence, you know, like a human child that can get quite good at anything, you know, given enough time. So where we are today with AI is we have a lot of narrow intelligence that can multiply numbers much faster than we can and soon drive cars better than we can, but still lacks the breadth of, of a human child. And the holy grail of, of AI research is to build artificial general intelligence, which is broad, which is defined to be something which can actually do as well as humans on all tasks. We obviously don't have that, but Surveys have shown that most AI researchers expect us to get there within decades. Right. I think Peter Voss actually coined that term, artificial general intelligence. Uh, My understanding is that it was Shane Legg who coined it, uh, who is one of the co-founders of, of Google DeepMind. But if, if you email me the, the links to Peter Voss there, I'd love to get the history straight. Huh. Okay, interesting. I think uh, it was like in the early 2000 in a conversation with Ben Gertio or during a conference together with Ben Gertio, but I, I forget the details. Maybe I should dig them out. Um, now, uh, so one of the consequences you said is that, okay, you, you deliberately define intelligence this broadly so that you can include all kinds of intelligences within it, not only our own human intelligence, but Right, because otherwise we just get stuck saying that all machines are non-intelligent by definition, and it's just right. But then that means that the first word "artificial" is kind of superficial and maybe not even necessary and sort of self-serving and anthropocentric, is it? Well, I think it's useful to distinguish between biological intelligence and and non-biological intelligence, since the former is the only general kind that we have today. I see. Okay, and then so we have intelligence and we have uh, artificial intelligence and the use thereof. So then what is the technological singularity? So this is a very interesting and controversial idea <laughs> uh, where if we manage to build artificial general intelligence, so we have now a machine that can do everything as well as we humans can, 
right? That means that it can also do AI design and AI research as well as humans can, which means Google could get could replace its 40,000 engineers by AI systems that could do the same stuff much cheaper and much faster. And from that point onward, our progress in improving AI further will be driven mainly by AI itself, not by humans, which means that additional AI progress could be way faster than the typical human research development timescale of years. Let me hold you here for one second, though, because people have pointed out that if you have an AI and you copy it 40,000 times, you're not 40,000 times sm smarter than you started. You simply have 40,000 copies of identical copies of the original AI. So it's like having 40,000 identical people. And uh, progress comes from diversity in intelligence, allegedly. Sure, absolutely. First of all, the argument I'm about to make is not an argument that we will, for sure, with 100% certainty, get a singularity. Well, the argument I'm making is simply to explain why it's not a crazy idea. So, um, of course, if you have, you don't want to have a company with 40,000 identical people doing the exact same thing. That's a complete waste of your payroll as well. I'm just making the point that if you can replicate each individual human with machines, you, you can do the same thing much cheaper, and then you can start having much more employees and they can work much faster, much longer hours. And before long, it's likely that they're going to start, the, the, the AI you'll have working for you, or, or the AI will have actually capacities that are much better than human researchers with whatever diversity you want. And Irving J. Good famously pointed out right, that um, if you just repeat this over and over again and let AI keep improving itself, special growth, perhaps, in intelligence. In physics, whenever you have an exponential growth of anything, we call it an explosion. If it's an exponential growth in the number of neutrons that have decayed in a clump of uranium, for example, we call it a nuclear explosion. If it's an exponential growth in the number of people in a country, we call it a population explosion. And if it's an explosion of the best AI that exists, we call it an intelligence explosion. So, he, so Irving J. Good made the point, and this is an idea that goes even farther to back to really, Turing and Wiener also. Uh, it's not at all implausible that once you get to machines that are better than us at everything, by a little, we could very soon get to machines that are dramatically better than us. And I mean, as a physicist, I think this, this kind of humility is very appropriate because we used to think that we humans are like the pinnacle of creation and the smartest, the best thing that there can be. But then we discovered that when we, whenever we understood more about how some aspect of us worked, we couldn't just match our performance. We could rapidly do much better. Once we understood how our muscles worked and were able to build motors that were as strong as our muscles, it was very quick for us to make motors that were vastly stronger than our muscles. Once we could make machines going as fast as us, before long we could go way faster than us. And we should expect, once we can make machines a little bit smarter than us, it's pretty plausible that soon we can make machines way smarter than us. Because our intelligence, let's face it, is limited by the size of our mommy's birth canal and also limited by right. the squishy blob of meat in our brain that computes sort of on the timescale of, of, of a second which is already like a billion times slower than typical 
CPU clock speeds. And uh, there's nothing special really about human intelligence suggesting we couldn't blow away past it. So the idea of a singularity, in short, is the idea that if we actually get the artificial general intelligence within decades, then maybe very shortly after that, we could be so far beyond that it's very hard to predict even what's going to happen. And, and the way I think about it, it, what this means is that we've really only seen the tip of the intelligence iceberg. And by building AI, we might be able to unlock the true potential for intelligence. It's always been latent in nature. Nature has, in, has dramatically more compute power than we've tapped into. Right. Seth Lloyd has a phenomenal book on that topic. I love his book, he, and I highly recommend it, where he argues that the universe is like a computer. Seth Lloyd is one of my best friends here at MIT, and he's arguably the only person at MIT who is as crazy as I am. <laughs> and in that spirit, though, if you think about our universe as a computer right now, what is it doing with most of its CPU cycles? It's spending the vast majority of them just simulating ocean waves, and other stuff over and over and over again and simulating some solar system out there where there's nobody living, you know, you might consider that like a giant waste of space, like a screensaver, except even worse if nobody's looking, right? And if we can actually develop artificial general intelligence and make it be, make, make it go well for us humans, we have the chance to repurpose this cosmic computer and have it do much in, more interesting things. With its, with its compute cycles than what it's doing now. And if you think about it, that is kind of what I love the most about life also. Like when, when my wife and I put out uh, some leftover food in the backyard, for example, and some cute little squirrel comes and eats it, she'll say to me, oh, this got rearranged into something much cuter. <laughs> so in a way, what she means by that is that those atoms in in the leftover rice that that are, somebody didn't finish for dinner were not computing anything very interesting at all they were just computing what a rice grain does when it lies still on a plate now instead they're they're, they're computing a conscious experience in the brain of a cute little squirrel right doing its stuff and in a way our brains these atoms in our brains are are doing even more interesting things i would say they maybe they can, in human brains atoms can be involved in writing poetry, experiencing joy and excitement and beauty. Yet, if you think about it, what is the percentage? What is the fraction of all the atoms in our universe that are actually currently involved in computing something interesting? Almost nothing. Right? Even on this planet, the vast majority of all the atoms in this planet aren't used are completely useless for us. They're, all they're doing is providing a gravitational field for us and a little bit of magnetic field for the iron in the core of the Earth. You know, And, and look, look out into space. I know many of my colleagues take for granted that we live in some kind of Star Trek cosmos with all this life out there, but there's on, frankly not a shred of scientific evidence for it yet. That, and it's pretty likely that there's even more, an even more copious waste of, of <clears throat> that are out there. That uh, I would love it if, if life can one day tap into it. I feel a little bit like that if you back up a little bit and think about what we humans have discovered so far, 
we, we've, we've come to discover that everything we thought existed was just a small part of a, something much grander, a planet, a solar system, a galaxy, a galaxy cluster, a universe, and maybe more. And, and we've also discovered that we've gradu- dramatically underestimated our potential, the potential of life to do, do great things. So we're finding out that I think about it a little bit as like if if somebody say some civilization evolved and and had they'd spent all their life living um, on the island of Cyprus and they thought that's everything that existed and then they discovered hey there's this whole planet out there maybe we should like and there was no animals out there nothing. It would seem like a pretty nice idea to spread life to the rest of the planet, wouldn't it? And uh, <clears throat> that's what we have the potential to do in our universe. And not just more of the same, but we also discovered through science and technology, it can be so much better. Yeah, and you spend a lot of time in your first book actually about the the sort of addressing the Fermi paradox argument and why you think we're alone in the universe. And you touch considerably upon in your second book, but it's, but you spend a lot more time uh, on it in the first book. Let me ask you this, though. So what's your personal... And you give a lot of uh, references to sort of the surveys with all the scientists with respect to the singularity and when that could happen and how that's shifting forward perhaps by four or five or six years or seven years maybe even... Where about do you stand personally? What's your timeline to the singularity? If you were to project or extrapolate, where would you space it in time? Well, I told you one of the words that I think adjectives that defines me is curiosity, but I think another one is humility. I, I try to be very humble about my own predictions and keep a very open mind. Um, yes, it's true that most AI researchers think it's going to happen, artificial general intelligence, um, within decades. There are also some quite vocal and prominent AI researchers who think it's going to take way longer. Rodney Brooks thinks it's going to take hundreds of years. You know, Andrew Ng, Ng thinks it's going to take a very long time. I respect those, those points of view. And there are also some who think it's going to take less. So I try to keep a very open mind. To me, the most interesting question is not the quibble about exactly how many percent chance it is that's going to happen within the next 30 years, but rather to ask what useful things can I do right now that are going to maximize the chances that this becomes a good thing and not a bad thing. You know, you don't have to be convinced for sure that your house is going to burn down to, to, in, in order to teach your kids not to leave candles on at night and to get insurance or smoke in bed or get home insurance and stuff like that. And, and moreover, we're not just talking about downside here, avoiding problems. We're talking about an incredible upside if we get this right. So I feel very motivated. And, and the, the big hullabaloo you hear about in the media and all the controversy is really about two separate things. One, one, one big controversy is about the timeline. You know, are, are we going to get super intelligence? And if so, when? And the other one is what's going to happen? So some people think it's basically guaranteed to be good, so there's no need to talk about it. Other people think it's basically guaranteed to be bad, so there's nothing to talk about. <laughs> I'm in the middle. I, I think this could be the best thing ever to happen to humanity or the worst thing ever, which makes me maximally motivated to try to make the difference. 
I'm a simple philosopher myself, and, and uh, for me, the timeline question is a curious question, but it's not really the more important thing. The most important thing, like with all philosophy, is always the so what, rather than when, is the so what, and what can we do about it now to sort of steer it towards the better outcome rather than the worst one, right? So that's kind of always been my my sort of starting takeoff point for this. But if I were to ask you at least uh, to sort of align yourself with a hard or a soft takeoff, where would you place yourself along that continuum? I try to keep an open mind there too, honestly. I think both are, are plausible. The one, one interesting argument for a hard takeoff is uh, what Nick Bostrom has called hardware overhang. My sense is that we're currently mainly limited by software, not by hardware. I think if we really knew the absolutely best way to make AI software, we already have the hardware today existing to create superhuman intelligence. But we're so clueless on the software that we to overcompensate with way more hardware than needed. Which means that if we ever succeed in building superhuman AI, then the first thing it can do is just iteratively improve its own software over and over and over again many, many times. And it'll suddenly be just dramatically better than it was maybe just the day before. Right. Yeah, I think you touched considerably upon that in your sort of starting metaphor story in your book with uh, sort of the omegas. So let's use this moment as, as a convenient point to shift towards your book. What is Life 3.0 about? Life 3.0 is really uh, my call to arms to people to take this really seriously and, and realize not only that AI can be the best thing or the worst thing ever to happen to humanity, but that they can actually make a difference. So I, I started with this little provocative story of <laughs> to try to give a more realistic scenario where AI actually takes over the world to help people get away from these stupid Hollywood uh, tropes of the Terminator and so on. And, and, to, and to, to appreciate that you don't even need robots. It's the intelligence itself that gives the power, regardless of whether it has, it's in a robotic body or not. And I, I want to, I hope that uh, got people thinking a little bit about, hey, you know, maybe something like that isn't completely crazy. I loved it. Uh, let me just interrupt here for a second. I loved it, but to me, it had a bit of a different connotation because you see, one of the physicists I've interviewed on my show was Frank J. Tipler. And when you talk about the Omega point, basically Frank told me straight up, the singularity is inevitable. I understand quantum mechanics and you don't, and that's why you don't understand why it's inevitable. Because I was asking him, is it inevitable? He's like, it's absolutely inevitable. We're all converging towards the omega point. I was like, well, that's not, and he interrupted me and he said, that's because I understand quantum mechanics and you don't, and that and that's it, basically. <laughs> so Well, <laughs> so much for humility, huh? Well, I'm a physicist. I also understand quantum mechanics. I have read his entire book about the Omega Point, and I think his argument is exaggerated. And he even blamed you uh, as, as, like, not personally, but all his colleagues to be unscientific, because if they were actually scientific, they would understand why he's a reborn Christian and believes in God and in the Omega Point. 
But because they were like ideologically close-minded and unscientific, they refused to embrace his conclusions. That's what he said. Yeah, it sounds a little bit defensive to me, but uh, no, Frank is a very creative guy. He's written a lot of very interesting things, but I think, I think it's so important as a scientist to be humble and not fall too much in love with your own theories and be, <clears throat> be willing to have, be a little bit more dispassionate when, 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 when judging them, you know, and, um, I don't think there's anything inevitable about the human future. <clears throat> we are in a very unstable situation where it's quite clear it can go in several different directions. And we, we should not feel, in fact, <clears throat> I think the greatest risk of all we face with AI and the future of technology is complacency. Right. So, it, which comes from people saying things are inevitable. You know, what's the number one technique of psychological warfare it's to convince people it's inevitable you're screwed genghis khan is coming or killing communism used to i'm i'm bulgarian so we used to to get this in in bulgaria when i was a child in communist time that you know the the triumph of the proletariat was inevitable at the global planetary level eventually it would all be a communist revolution yeah whenever anyone Whenever anyone gets convinced that something is inevitable, they become passive like sheep and become complacent. It doesn't matter whether you think it's inevitably going to be great or inevitably going to suck. I want to do exactly the opposite with my book. I want to make people feel empowered and realize that this is a unique moment after 13.8 billion years of cosmic history when we, people who are alive on this planet now, can actually make a spectacular difference for the future of life, not just on this planet, but throughout much of the cosmos, right? And not just for the next election cycle, but for billions of years. And the greatest risk is that people start believing that something is inevitable and, and just don't put in their best effort. There's no better way to fail than to convince yourself that it doesn't matter what you do. Yeah, I actually had a, uh, also a, d a debate with Robin Hansen on my show because uh, his book, The Age of M, he started by saying, basically, this is how it's going to be, more or less. And I told him, look, I totally disagree with you because in my opinion, it could be a lot worse or it could be a lot better. And it all depends on what we're going to do right now. But you're kind of saying this is how things are going to be. And he's like, well, yeah, because you extrapolate. I was like, yeah, I don't see it to be like a direct line from here to there. But anyway. That's another great example. I mean, Robin Hansen is a very creative guy and I, it's a very thought-provoking book. I even wrote a blurb for it. But uh, we can't just say that's how it's going to be because he even says himself that the age of M will only last for two years from the outside perspective. And our universe is going to be around for billions of years more. So surely we should put some serious effort into making sure that the rest becomes <laughs> as great as possible too, shouldn't we? Yes, agreed. But let's go back to, to the topic of your book. So you call it Life 3.0. Let us differentiate what you mean by 3.0 uh, as opposed to 1.0 and 2.0. Yeah, I wrote that because I think many biologists get a little bit too lost in the weeds. Um, I call the first life we know of, like, I, I call it life 1.0 because it was really dumb, like bacteria, unable to learn anything during its lifetime. If you have, uh, if you look at a little bacterium under the microscope, you know, it has interesting behavior. It'll figure out 
where there's higher sugar concentration and swim towards there. But that knowledge resides in its DNA, and it can only learn from one generation to the next by natural selection. You and I, on the other hand, and our fellow humans, I call us life 2.0, because we can learn, which in nerdy computer speak, you would think of installing new software into our brain. Upgrading. You were born speaking only Bulgarian, and I only Swedish, and we thought, hey, let's install an English-speaking module in our brains, because that would be good. So we did, and now we can have this conversation. Right. People around the world decide to install new job skills and all sorts of things. And it's this ability to, to learn, which has enabled cultural evolution and made us the dominant species on the planet, right? How many languages do you speak, by the way? I was counting something like six or seven you mentioned in your book. And before our conversation, you even said a few phrases to me in Bulgarian, which totally blew my mind. Lagodaria. But... No comments. My wife has calculated some number, which is a bit bigger than yours, but it it, it depends a bit on your definition of speak. Wow. It, it's just, it just reflects the fact that I actually love, I just fell in love with traveling you know, and not just, I didn't just want to travel, but I thought it was just so much cooler if I could go places and actually and, and, and learn more about other cultures. But coming back to the life definition, so 1.0 has its hardware and software just set by evolution. Life 2.0 can design its own software. Life 3.0, which can design also its um, hardware, of course doesn't exist yet, but perhaps technology has already made us life 2 artificial joints, uh, pacemakers, and cochlear implants. And uh, if we get super intelligence, that would obviously, because it won't be limited by what fits through its mommy's birth canal, it could, it could swap out, it, it could design better hardware on the fly and um, take whatever physical form it, it, it wants to and uh, be the ultimate liberation of life from, from the shackles of Darwinian evolution. So ironically, you know, that would be intelligent design. <laughs> uh, and let me ask you this, uh, because he, immediately here, like one of the, a number of uh, audience people asked, okay, Max is talking about 3.0, life 3.0. When is it coming? When is it coming? When does it? When does he think that life will have life 3.0 if we don't have it yet? I think it's basically the same question as when will we get the super intelligence? Because, you know, the reason we haven't figured out how to build self-replicating nanoprobes or neural machine interfaces and so on is because we're not in it's our intel our own intelligence has been stumped by this it's obviously possible according to the laws of physics you know duh so if we can amplify our intelligence dramatically with machine intelligence i think it's a no-brainer that we can that we, we or machines can you know, figure out how to do this wow uh, okay so if i were to ask you to summarize the the thesis of your book in a sentence or two what is your thesis? 13.8 billion years of cosmic history, we are on the cusp of really becoming the masters of our own destiny, right? We've finally developed technology to the point that we can either use it to self-destruct or to help life flourish throughout the cosmos for billions of years. So we're at this amazing fork in the road. And there's never been a, a time when we should feel more motivated to pay attention to this and make sure we make the right choice 
at this fork in the road. Mm. Max, I think you wrote an absolutely phenomenal book. Uh, I I was amazed by not only by its length, because on the audio file, it was like well over 13 hours, maybe 13 and a half hours of listening time, but also by your writing style, your sense of human, which, humor, which is, I would say, not so typical of a scientist, because I, I've had to re read a lot of books written by scientists, and sometimes they're very hard to digest. Uh, especially mathematicians. So, for example, the only book I've ever had to drop because I just couldn't get through it was a Mathematica by Stephen Wolfram. Uh, it was, uh, and I got the some of the ideas, or I thought I was understanding it, but it was so hard to to digest to read. Anyway, that's just my personal flaws. But so I, I love your book. But let me just push you a tiny little bit on your opening quote in your book, and because you touched in your last statement here before, and it's an opening quote that you took from the Future of Life Institute, which we're going to touch upon later on, which goes like this: Technology is giving life the potential to flourish like never before or to self-destruct. Let's make a difference. I totally embrace this call to action. Uh, the only qualification I want to add here is let's talk about let's talk about what life are we talking about. Okay, because there's a recent report here that came out that says that humanity has killed 83% of all wild uh, wild mammals and half of all plants, wild plants. And now of the surviving uh, animals and plants, for example, 83% uh, uh, are poultry birds, for example. Uh, so, uh, or no, 70% are po poultry chickens and other farmed birds. And of the mammals left in the world, 60% are livestock, 36% are pigs, and only mere 4% are wild. And of course... And those, yeah, and those livestock animals generally do not live very happy lives either, Right. I, thanks to us. Right, I just finished interviewing uh, Professor Peter Singer before you on my podcast when we talked a lot about that. But so, sure. so when you talk about life has flourished, uh, you know... I said can flourish. Technology is giving life the potential to flourish like never before. Okay, all right, I, I accept that. So you mean let's talk about which life you're referring to. You 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 have a lot a lot more expansive uh, definition of life spanning beyond Homo sapiens. Yeah, um, thank you for uh, reminding us that we need to be humble and not uh, get all arrogant about how nice we are. Because let's face it, we are not always very nice. We're nice to our pet cats sometimes, but we've been very much not nice to a lot of the other species we have killed off to uh, Neanderthals, to our farm animals today, and to uh, slaves and, and so on. So, so um, you, you actually come straight to one of the core questions that I really talk about a lot, as you saw in, in the later parts of the book. Which I hope is, so, because it's deliberate. What sort of which is the destination of the rocket. You know, exactly. people, tech nerds like myself tend to get so obsessed about the power of the technology. Let's make this AI rocket powerful. But then of course we realize, yeah, we need to figure out how to steer it. And who comes on the rocket with Control us? Control and safety. Yeah, and, but where do we want to go with it? What specifically, what kind of future do we want? Uh, and um, this is to me the elephant in the room that almost nobody is talking about still today in 2018 because people are so focused on job loss and other near-term questions, but uh, 
this is absolutely crucial. So, for example, some of my uh, AI colleagues want us to build super intelligence and keep it under human control, like enslaved gods, disconnected from the internet. The Oracle AI, some people call that. Yeah, if it just gives them information, but some might want to go farther and have it even do things for them as long. But then, you know, uh, I feel humbled by who said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you might wonder whether we humans in our pre present form are actually wise enough to handle this much power. And also, you know, aside from any moral qualms that you might superior minds, which we have a bit of a bad track record with in the past, right? The, you might also worry about the superintelligence breaking out and taking over. So that's one. And then I also have some colleagues who are fine with AI just taking over and even causing you, uh, as long as we can feel that these AIs have adopted our best values, like our cosmic children, right? But how can we be sure that the AIs aren't just unconscious zombies tricking us into anthropomorphizing us, right? And also, shouldn't those people who don't want human extinction have a say in the matter also? And if you didn't like any of those two high-tech scenarios, it's also really important to remember that low-tech is suicide in a cosmic perspective, right? Because if we don't go far beyond today's technology, the question is not whether humanity is going to go extinct, but merely whether we'll get taken out by the next killer asteroid or, or some other problem that better technology could have solved. And then there are people who think, hey, can't we have our cake and eat it? I mean, create superintelligence, which is not enslaved, but treats us. Its goals are aligned with ours. So this is the gist of, of what Eliezer Yukowski has called friendly AI. Friendly AI. Yeah. And I think if we could pull this off, it could be amazing. You know, we could not only eliminate negative experiences like poverty, disease, and suffering, but also give people the freedom to choose between this amazing new diversity of positive experiences. But... Um, many people have very different ideas for what they want society to be like in such a future, what sort of society there should be. And, uh, and for whom? there's also, also, and for whom exactly. And, and also there are all these very tough technical problems involved in how to make machines understand our goals, retain our goals and adopt our goals. So if we're going to have, a fighting chance of getting any kind of friendly AI, we need to stop futzing around and really focus hard on, on AI safety research today so that we can figure out how to make machines understand, retain, and adopt our goals before, and not to start this you know, the night before someone switches on a superintelligent. Right. I agree completely. But let me share with you something that I experienced, and it's, I think, continuing that point about who is included and how, and whether we're exhibiting speciesism or biologism or carbon chauvinism. Um, I became vegan about two and a half years ago. And Me too. I, I, you too? Yep. Since when? Or about more like, more like one and a half years ago. My wife and I decided to just, okay. That's phenomenal because I'm setting you up to give you hard time for your great leather jacket, which I used to have one of which for many years and I recently gave it away. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> the David Chalmers leather I'll blame, jacket. I'll blame, I'll blame my, blame my wife for the leather jacket because she bought it for me. <laughs> okay, great. She liked David Chalmers leather jacket and bought me an ident- almost identical. I know, and I used to have one of those, and I used to love it. But when I became vegan, I gave away my belts, everything. I have a few pairs of shoes that I'm wearing off. But okay, so forget about my story. Let me go back straight to you. And why did you become vegan? Because when I became vegan, it was very controversial. For my audience, a lot of people attacked me and got really upset at me. And it was, I wrote this article which had six points called why I went vegan. And only in point five or six, I mentioned that if artificial intelligence were to embrace our modus operandi, that we're not a member of their species and they're smarter than us and therefore they can kill us and enslave us and buy the billions for fun or for food, we are doomed. And many people got so upset at me from my own audience. So what made you become vegan? Tell me your story. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I don't want to judge other people, but but I, I do want to judge myself and I don't want to be a hypocrite. I, I um, feel that we really should to try to create positive experiences in the cosmos, you know, make sure that these cosmic computations happening are, are good ones. And I, so since I personally find it very, quite disgusting how we, we uh, basically torture a lot of our livestock and farm animals in, in, in conditions that make even a lot of slavery seem pleasant in comparison, I just feel I don't personally want to contribute to that. This even manifests itself in these other things that some of our friends tease us about, you know, like Snoofy, the mouse right, I mentioned. Right. I thought that's going towards that direction when we were discussing it. And here we have Mr. Hoggles, the groundhog who lives in the backyard. And we, we um, some of our neighbors maybe think we should trap the groundhog, hey, you know, he he moved in here before we did. We can get we can get along, and uh, I so that's 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 my own make a big deal about it. I never try to anybody else to my viewpoint, either religiously or with with or dietarily. But but don't you find that's relevant with the potential relationship that we might have with artificial or even alien intelligence. Because as I said, if they embrace our current modus operandi, we are doomed because they would treat us the same way we treat animals now, presuming they're smarter than us, right? And because they would say, you're not a member of my species and we're so much smarter than you, therefore we can eat, we can do whatever the heck we want to do with you, which is what we do now. And therefore my argument is, and so let me know if you buy it or not, is that at least we can hope to set a good precedent of higher intelligence treating a lower intelligence with dignity and respect the way we would like to be treated ourselves by higher intelligences, hopefully. And that, that's not guarantee, but at least it's a good precedent, I think. Oh, sure, yeah, I mean... People love to say, yeah, we should teach AI to adopt human values, but then what are these values exactly. we want them to adopt? Do we really want them to teach them to adopt a value that might makes right? And uh, if you have more power than some slaves, or if we feel that we're more intelligent than the chickens, we can treat them however we want. You know, I'd rather not those be the values we 
we uh, load into our our future AI systems. And and let's face it, also right, technology just gives us so much opportunity to make more out of our resources. So we need to snap out of this outdated idea that we live in a zero sum game. Uh, some many people still think that somehow the only way they can get it better is by invading another country or taking more land from somebody else or taking away more space from this wildlife reserve, from the animals. No, with more technology, there's plenty enough atoms on this planet to provide wonderful lives for everybody. I agree completely. Let's go back uh, to your book, though. Uh, how would you measure success or failure with uh, Life 3.0? What's your kind of benchmark? You're a scientist, right? When you start to do something, you have to have a way to measure. Did I succeed? Did I fail? Well, for starters, no. if we could get some kind of guarantee that we're not just going to go extinct in some stupid self-inflicted mishap within my lifetime, I think that would already be a major success. It's actually not guaranteed. Even even with without AI, we've managed to come uncomfortably close to that many times, right? We've had we've had over a dozen really really serious instances where we almost had nuclear war by mistake. For example, former American Secretary of State William J. Perry visited us at MIT not too long ago and told us about when he got called up at three o'clock in the morning by this general t telling the World War Three had started and we needed to uh, relaunch our nukes at the Soviet Union, you know. If, if, if something like that happened, then thousands of mushroom clouds later, I think we could all agree we have not met, met our benchmark, right? That does not count as a wise use of, of, our, of our tech. And um, I think, I think, um, for starters, so that that'll be my baseline. Let's not go extinct, <laughs> and and uh, and or do anything that pretty much everybody that alive today agrees would be idiotic. That's harder than it sounds. And uh, and then uh, now, if you're in if you're in a house that's on fire, the first thing you do is not to have a long philosophical conversation with your friends in the living room about what utopia you want. First thing you do is you get out of the house and put out the fire. I feel we're sort of in this situation on Earth right now. We're in a we're sort of driving towards a cliff. And, uh, so let's let's first just uh, buy ourselves a bit more time by not doing something really stupid. And then the next step, uh, of course, becomes thinking really hard about what we are really excited about. And I would actually like us to start that also right now, because the best way to prevent premature extinction, and I think really is for people to have a shared positive vision about where they're hoping to go. You know, why is it that we times form, or why is it that people get married? Why is it that we collaborate in general? It's because of a shared positive vision, right? And uh, this is another thing that's very central in my book. Uh, this is also why we call the Future Life Institute something positive rather than the doom and gloom institute. I think, you know, every time people go to the movies and think about the future, they watch yet another dystopia where everything goes to hell in yet another way, right? And uh, 
I think we need to put much more effort into actually envisioning positive futures, uh, which is hard. You know, even world religions tend to have much more detailed and graphical descriptions of hell than heaven. But if all you ever think about is all the ways that things can go wrong, you that that causes disarray and that we see in the, in the on the planet today. The metaphor that I usually like to use is the fact that if you look at statistically uh, accidents of, of drivers who hit poles along the road, uh, statistically they shouldn't be hitting the poles as often as they are hitting them. But the reason that they're hitting the poles a lot more, more often than they should be is because they focus on the poles. And so while you're driving, you lose control of your car and then you see the pole coming at you and then you're focused on it. And of course, the car goes where you look at or, or especially that's even more true on a bicycle. I'm, I'm a cyclist. So if you're on a bicycle, Me too. oh, you too, that's phenomenal. We're discovering all these <laughs> dark secrets about things we have in common. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's how I go to work every day. That's great. That's great. What kind of bike do you have? I have a couple of hybrid uh, mountain, mountain bikes. I always have a spare one if I have a flat tire one morning so I can get into work anyway. That's great. That's brilliant. Okay, yeah. So, so basically, to, to support your pre previous claim, we need, to, we need to envision the future where, where we want to end up and look at it and focus on it so that just like steering a bicycle or a car, we end up going there. Because if we just look at uh, the bad side, we're going to steer towards that end. Yeah, absolutely. So, so for a positive example, like you and I, you and I both grew up in Europe, Bulgaria and Sweden, right? And I think many Europeans were just accustomed to the idea that, you know, that every so often Europe would self-destruct and yet another huge war. And, and it seemed like the law of nature was always going to happen. And people spent so much time fearing the next war that they kept mobilizing for it and then it happened again. And then, you know, after 1945, people started saying, yeah, maybe we can have a more positive vision. Like, what if we actually just don't have a war in Europe for a while? Imagine all the prosperity we could get. And that's what actually ended up happening. Uh, similarly, an another very influential positive vision, I think, was when J.F. Kennedy gave his famous speech about going to the moon. This was some positive, where, which people really rallied around all across America and gave us a whole generation that was so obsessed and excited about technology that it transformed America into the world's scientific and technological leader. Uh, that's the reason why Silicon Valley today is, you know, in America, not in Bolivia. And uh, I think there's a huge power in this kind of positive visions. So my homework to anyone who watches this is to next time you're at a party or having dinner or beers with some friends, whatever, ask them what sort of future society with advanced tech they would be excited about and then try to poke holes in it and, and see if you can actually come up with some vision that you both think would be quite cool and willing to steer towards and then, then share it online because the more discussion we have about positive futures, the more likely we are to actually end up in a positive future. And, and the more people realize that this is not a zero-sum game and we can all be better off and end up in this positive place, right, the more likely it is that AI 
is going to be used for good. Which is why the motto of my podcast is called Interview the Future, which then is used as the foundation for my blog motto, which is Create the Future. So you interview the future, you choose the best scenario, and then you start creating it. That's the whole idea of, behind my work. Anyway, uh, we only have about maybe uh, eight, 17 minutes. So let me uh, move on and discuss uh, the Future of Life Institute. So we talked about your book. We talked about how you measure success and failure. And by the way, um, well, I would keep that thought for a second, but Tell me where and how does the Future of Life Institute fit within the grander idea behind the book's agenda? So the agenda of the book is very much the same as the agenda of the Future of Life Institute. Right? We feel, me and my co-founders, that um, technology really has this incredible potential to help life flourish like never before you know, or, or to self-destruct as we said and, and we want to do what we can to make sure it becomes to max the, the former not not the latter um the, we uh, we're quite a small organization you know most of us are volunteers like myself we don't get paid for it we, we put a lot of uh, love and, and time and energy into it and um I feel it's been actually really inspiring how it's gone so far. It's it's gone way above my expectations, which 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 were actually already pretty high from the beginning. So I don't say this lightly. You know, the, we uh, fo were focused specifically on the things that could make the most difference because I'm a physicist, right? So if I want to move a massive object, I try to find something which is sort of balanced in an unstable situation where a small force can make the difference about whether it falls down this way. A point of leverage, as Archimedes would say, probably. Yes, exactly. So the so we focus on the most powerful technologies, nuclear technology, biotechnology, artificial intelligence. For uh, We've mainly done things to reduce the risk of nuclear war and, and to maximize the chances that things go well with, with AI. We're probably best known for our AI work, so I can start with that. And um, So when, when this began, the very first meeting ever of the Future Life Institute was actually very appropriately here in this room. This is our living room. Um, we would often sit here. Where are you located, by the way? Are you in Boston or near Boston? We live in Winchester, just north of Boston. So at this dinner table here, the five founders of the Future of Life Institute, we sat and had sushi and 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 got it all officially set up. There was me, my wife, Maya Kita Tegmark, psychology researcher, Jan Talin, whom you mentioned before, who co-founded Skype, Anthony Aguirre, a, a physics colleague of mine, and uh, Victoria Krakovna, an AI researcher, who's now working at DeepMind. And we would have all these meetings in this very room. So we would fit maybe 30 people around the wall here and we would brainstorm about what were the most concrete things we could actually do because we're actually we're very much about doing. And then we would rank them and then we would go and we would do start doing them. And the, one of the first, the first big project we took on was to mainstream AI safety. And what I mean by that is that 
about four years ago, the whole debate about AI safety was completely dysfunctional. You had these two camps that wouldn't talk to each other. You had AI researchers who were afraid that even acknowledging that there were risks would be bad for funding and, and cause them to be regulated to death. And then you had people who were worried, who felt frustrated that the AI researchers were ignoring them. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could actually reclaim the middle ground and get a meaningful dialogue going? So we realized that, so we want, that we should organize the first ever conference bringing together the world leading AI researchers and also warriors in a safe place where they could actually talk freely. People told me this is never going to work. Forget it. You know, why would they come to your conference? It's, and uh, so we pulled out all the stops. We located it in Puerto Rico and in January and sent out an invitation for the big picture of some guy shoveling snow off of his car. We, 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 we um, used this usual avalanche strategy where we first had started a little snowball nucleus by getting a few very famous ARBs to recruit a broader circle. We banished all press from the conference so people should feel safe and comfortable. And uh, the, the result was really remarkable. I, it, was, it was so amazing, not just for me, but I think pretty much everybody who came to see that the people they had thought were crazy on the other side of the spectrum were all quite reasonable. And that there was a very broad agreement that, hey, you know, this is, there are real risks here and also great opportunities if we get this right. And what came out of that first conference was this open letter, SIAM, which helped mainstream AI safety research because it was signed by a sort of a who-to of AI researchers. And what also happened there, which was great, was that Elon Musk basically said, okay, here you guys, you want to work on AI safety research. Let me give you 10 million reasons to do it. <laughs> and, and with his uh, funding, we were able to, to do the first ever global grants program and get people actually move away from the arguing and quibbling and into actually doing the research to get the answers we needed. Two years later, we followed this up with a conference in California in Asilomar. And it, it was dramatic to see how far the mainstreaming had come in the meantime. Now it was much less taboo. and and what came out of that meeting, the, the 23 Asilomar principles, had much more teeth to it. You know, the Puerto Rico open letter was still very much peace, love, and motherhood. And, you know, the, the most scary word in that whole letter was pitfalls. <laughs> but the, the Asilomar principles that came out, they talked about superintelligence. The word is in there. Existential risk and so on. And, and that, again, was signed by over a 1,000 AI researchers. So who's who basically around the world? It was really, really impressive. And so after that, it's basically been impo become impossible for people to dismiss these risks as things that only uh, pacifist tree huggers and, and, and philosophers and other non-AI researchers worry about because this was signed by all the founders of DeepMind and just really the, the leading AI researchers from companies and academic institutions around the world. And so we feel that by now the, the mainstreaming part is pretty much completed. And now the really hard work begins actually doing research to get 
the sort of answers that we actually need and also get a more healthy conversation going in the broader the destination towards which we want to steer this rocket. Right, exactly. And going back to my conversation with Jan Tallinn, by the way, another thing that we that was a point of debate between the two of us was that he ranked AI as the highest, biggest, most highest existential threat. And I argued in favor of nuclear uh, war in my books as the highest, most likely and most urgent threat, especially in the face of, I mean, Putin and Donald Trump, and even though that interview was... What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to be fair to, to Jan, though, that interview was way before uh, Donald Trump got elected. But still, we had Putin, we had uh, North Korea still and, and all those issues and tens of thousands of nuclear warheads around the globe. So in my books, that's always been like a higher priority. Whereabouts do you rank those? And I have to say to people, uh, uh, to members of our audience who haven't been to your website of the Future of Life Institute, that it's absolutely tremendous. I recommend everyone go and check it out. And it has the 23 Asilomar AI principles that you uh, mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of impressive stuff on AI safety research. There's a lot of, uh, let's say, the timeline of the accidental nuclear war, which should give people some food for thought when they're ready to dismiss that danger already as part of history or something. So whereabouts do you rank those two? Which one is higher priority than the other? Well, I would say, you know, if, um, if 7 billion humans get killed this year in 2018 by some stupidity, it's probably going to be a nuclear war between the US and Russia that was the cause. And it will most likely have started by accident. It's important to remember that these sort of accidents also much more likely to actually lead to a full-blown war in a period of great tension and hostility, which we have right now between Russia and the U.S. Uh, but if, if instead a similar number of deaths happen you know, in 50 years, then I think it's more likely to be caused by AI. Um, the, um, they're also linked, of course, because... Uh, if, if we put, um, as we put ever more of our infrastructure and weapons under the control of computer systems. Yeah, Matt, mutually assured destruction has this thing called second strike capability, which could be automated or a perfect, I mean, nuclear submarines used to be used for second strike capability. So even if, let's say, the homeland or the motherland has been destroyed, you still have deterrence because you can launch reverse attacks from nuclear subs, right? But now we can replace that with AI. Well, uh, yeah, William J. Perry, our former American Secretary of Defense again, who is absolutely not, uh, you know, some kind of uh, peace activist. He's the guy who was in charge of our nuclear arsenal. He thinks we should just get rid of our land-based nuclear missiles entirely. And and our bombers and just have nuclear weapons on submarines precisely because we still have the capability to launch about a thousand hydrogen bombs that way which is plenty enough to deter anybody from messing with us <laughs> but it, it takes away the destabilizing aspect right since since these are not vulnerable to attack you can just wait and see and if someone actually nukes you too bad for them but they might become vulnerable to attack if you replace the the human crew with an AI, because now we're we're all creating like 
uh, autonomous vehicles, right? And of course, uh, uh, an AI sub that doesn't need room for for a crew of 200 or something is much smaller, much easier to evade radar, to stay for indefinite time underwater and submerge and all of that. So if someone hacks that, that's another kind of danger. Yeah, and, and in addition to, uh, to hacking, there's another risk, which I think is worth keeping in mind. So some of these near misses, were, we actually can thank humans for. Absolutely. So, for example, last year we went to London on October 27 and gave a $50,000 award to the family of Vasily Arkhipov, who single-handedly prevented a Soviet nuclear strike against the U.S. 55 years earlier. And, and this coming September 26th is going to be the 35th non-anniversary of World War III because of Stanislav Petrov. You know, and if you look at what happened, it's very relevant to AI. He was at this Soviet uh, early warning Observe. facility. Yeah, and and was he a radar guy went, or a, anyway? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he was in charge of it. And this alarm went off that there were five American missiles coming in. And if he properly followed proper protocol, he was supposed to report this up this command chain, and it could very well it could have led perhaps to, to Soviet counter strike. And he, but he didn't obey protocol because he had this gut instinct that there's something wrong with the system. But if he had been an AI that was programmed to simply follow proper protocol, what do you think he would have done then? <laughs> and would we be having this interview? Yeah. And, and there's probably a dozen cases like that, at least in the history that I know of in the last, since the Cuban missile crisis onwards, maybe even before that. Yeah. So I think in any decision which involves the, the, de the death of millions and millions or billions and billions of people, I want there to be a human in the loop. Yeah. Well, Max, we only have, unfortunately, about three or four minutes left. So let me ask you three questions here in the last three minutes, one of which is gargantuan. But what's your brief take on technological unemployment? Is it a myth that we should ignore simply because you see in the past the Luddites have said that and it's never been the case and new technology has always created more job opportunities than it has destroyed? Or is it something that we need to contend with? We certainly need to contend with it. The uh, reason things worked out well during the Industrial Revolution was because the machines replaced our muscles. And then we educated ourselves and started working with our brains instead. Now we're building gradually machines that can outcompete our brain work, leaving no place to go other than becoming massage therapists and other jobs which, which pay less rather than more you know, than our previous jobs. Uh, but that said, you know, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. I think we have to let go a little bit of this obsession with jobs and ask why we want them. We want them for income, for a feeling of purpose, and for the social connections it gives us. I think if we think hard about it, we can find a way of getting all three without jobs. If machines can produce everything we need, we can get a vastly larger economic pie, you know, and we still can't figure out a way of, of sharing this pie so everyone gets better off and has a sense of purpose, then uh, shame on us. Max, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? They can go 
to my uh, website. They just type Tegmark into Google and look for the universes of Max Tegmark. Or, or I mean, the, 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 the one-stop shop for exactly how I think about these things is, of course, supposed to be my book, Life 3.0. Because that's why I wrote the book. I cannot recommend it high enough, by the way. It's it's a phenomenal book, as I said. A very substantial, uh, very in-depth, and going into many other fields that one wouldn't expect, like even politics, ethics, uh, social issues. It's uh, it's tremendously well done, and it's a must-read, in my opinion. Oh, thank you. Well, I hope I hope if, if people decide to read it, that they'll find not only that they learn a lot of new things, but more importantly, that they end up feeling more empowered than they did before they started. Okay, so it's been about a 90-minute, tremendously wide-spanning conversation where we touched about your childhood a little bit, uh, veganism, nuclear war, artificial intelligence, all kinds of other issues. What, in your opinion, should be the best single most important issue or message that our viewers and listeners should take away from this conversation with you today? That we should feel empowered. You know, it's so easy to feel powerless in this day and age, you know, feel that what you do doesn't matter, but it does. This is really the core message I have. And, uh, you know, maybe I can end by telling you just a little personal story. I actually have, how I've gone from made a U-turn here because I started feeling more and more disempowered. You know, the more I learned from studying our universe, for example, the more insignificant I felt, right? Realizing that we're just a puny little species on this little planet in the solar system and in this galaxy among hundreds of billions in this. As Douglas Adams would put it, infinitely small speck on an infinitely small speck in an endless universe. But... And also infinitely small in time because, hey, what's 100 years if you eat your vitamins and work out right, compared to billions of years? But, but then I, have, I really had this total U-turn. You know, part, partly it's because it started to, I started to realize that this Star Trek fantasy about our cosmos teeming with life elsewhere is based on some really bad math. And uh, there's a real chance that actually – the only species so far in our observable universe that even has telescopes might very well be us. And if you think about it, if you take that seriously for a moment, right, that, that possibility, then look at all those galaxies that made you feel small and insignificant. Do you think the galaxies are beautiful? They're gorgeous, especially if you look at the Hubble images. But why are they beautiful? They're beautiful because you, with your consciousness, experience them, right? If you and nobody else could actually see them with telescopes, they wouldn't be beautiful. They would just be a giant waste of space, as far as I'm concerned, right? And um, meaning and purpose comes entirely from the subjective experience, right? So if we go extinct because of some... Maybe this entire vast universe that made you feel so insignificant just goes back to being pointless again, right? In other words, I feel that it's not our universe giving meaning to us it's us giving meaning to our universe. And now the other reason I felt small was because of time, right? Our time, our lives are so short in the grand scheme of things. But this is the most, this period, the coming decades, I argue, are the most important decision point in the history of our cosmos. This is when it's going to get decided probably whether we're going to go extinct 
and it's going to be lights out for our universe, or whether life will actually get its act together and flourish for billions of years on Earth and beyond much of this amazing universe. So, so our universe is on the cusp of either waking up like never before or going back to sleep. And I think it's going to be decided probably you know, within our lifetime. And who's going to make it different? the difference? It's going to be those of us who are talking about these things now, you and I and people listening to your podcasts and thinking about these things. Um, because yeah we are the so that's so this so basically we have the opportunity to make the made in the history of, of life in the cosmos you know that to me is a very empowering thought and that's why i feel we should all It should fill us with a very strong will to go out and, and make a difference. Max Tegmark, thank you very much for being with us today. I feel that as an as an independent observer for you, you've been an inspiration, but also you, by your own living example, have shown how people can make a difference because you came out of nowhere with the Future of Life Institute and in a very short period of time, you got the best people around the world on a large scale involved in it. You got media coverage, you got conversations started, you get to actually make a difference to create the Asilomar principles, etc. And, and that's inspiration. And, and, and I thank you for that. And thank you for being with us today on our show. Thank you. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 